hello, hello. Uh, welcome to Leicester Square Theatre. I'd like to make clear this is not a live show. We are not here. Um, but I would ask you not to take any camera phone footage of us laughing about the fact that this isn't happening. And then leak it to ITV, just to be safe. No, this is, of course, a dead cat. Uh, to distract from what our colleagues on the bunker are up to uh, in an undisclosed location <laughs> across town. I'm Dory Linsky. Welcome to Ho, 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 God, What Now? Let's meet the people who would be here if this were happening. Uh, hello to Chief Executive of Best for Britain, Mistress of the Progressive Alliance and Superstar Vegan, Naomi Smith. Hello, hello, hello. Naomi, this Christmas party story, uh, which uh, just keeps on giving, uh, like, a, like, a, like a Russian doll of fuckery, you just keep opening it up. Um, is this a classic case of the cover-up being worse than the crime? Yes, but the crime, the alleged crime, whatever we're meant to call it, was horrific. Um, and I, we're all here to have fun tonight and laugh and all the rest of it, but I would like to just take a moment to think about what was happening on the 18th of December and my own personal situation was that my father had gone into hospital. He was very confused. He was very lonely. He didn't understand why we weren't able to be with him. And he died a few months later, yo-yoing in and out of a hospital and a care home the whole time. Each time the clock being reset on the 14 days self-isolation, he would then have to go into in the care home. And it was only six days before his death that I was able to touch him with a glove and my full PPE on, I'm not alone. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of families went through the same thing. So the, the, the crime itself is awful. But yes, had they ripped the plaster off, I think this probably would have died down a bit. But they've chosen to go for a strategy of death by a thousand cuts instead. And it, it, is, it is really cutting through. I mean, obviously, the, the performative pessimists on Twitter.com say that this won't make any difference. Um, but Barnard Castle, you know, did actually, yeah, it did. did actually cut through, did, per did permanently kind of affect Johnson's approval ratings. Now, um, Anton Deck are weighing in <laughs> and, uh, actually gazumped my opening joke, which is a little bit annoying. <laughs> um, is this a scandal that because it contributes to a one rule for us impression, you know, does have legs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one rule for us and absolutely no fucking rules for them um, is certainly where people are at at the moment. And I think there are three reasons why this is a lot worse than Barnard Castle. First of all, everyone has a memory of last Christmas. Everyone has that, you know, very stark memory of finding out that Christmas was cancelled after all of the bullshit about, no, 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 it won't be, it won't be, it'll go ahead. Whether they were away from their family, whether they were unable to visit somebody who was ill, whatever the hell it was. Two, we are now arguably at a much worse stage of the pandemic than we were when Barnard Castle happened. Cases are through the roof. We're seeing more hospitalizations. The, the new variant is running rampant. We're seeing a massive spike in cases, NHS under pressure. And then thirdly, we have video evidence of them mocking us this time, whereas we didn't so much with Barnacastle. So there's this very, very 
you know, in-your-face optical Well, it's the equivalent of a video, like a kind of dashboard cam of Dominic Cummings indeed, going, indeed. Oh, my eyes are fine. Exactly, you know, exactly. Driving along. <laughs> and, and I just have to say, like, a shout-out to journalists. Like, uh, you know, a lot of the time, you know, Remainers and progressive left get frustrated with the media and, you know, feel like they do too much of the government's bidding. But this week, I think journalists have been fantastic. I don't think it was coordinated, but if it was, my God, what a symphony of the scandal it really was. And to whoever was sat on that Allegra Stratton video, I mean, they deserve the Pulitzer, 100%. <laughs> Um, hello to multi-talented commentator and friend to the stars, Alex Andreu. <laughs> hello. Um, government ministers have for some reason been avoiding the media today, um, which means they weren't able to promote the bringing forward of boost jabs or talk about the introduction of Plan B restrictions, including working from home and vaccine passports. So... Is this kind of the real, this collateral damage of a scandal like this? Obviously, we talk about how it's going to affect, you know, the government. But the fact that it, it sort of gets in the way, because yeah. otherwise yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. have had Sajid Javid on the morning shows going, uh, you can go and get your booster now. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's horrific in every conceivable way. Um, because essentially, if the average citizen out there can't work out whether we've gone to stricter measures because the data demanded it, or because Johnson is in trouble, good luck getting them to follow the new rules. And the government should have been out there today giving a really strong unified message, and in, instead they were hiding, literally hiding. Kay Burley and Sky was like, we were trying to call them, and they weren't answering their phone. Um, they pulled, there were another couple of events during the day, Eustace and Rab, I think it was, and they pulled them because there would be journalists there. And I'm not sure if that was Downing Street making a decision to pull them, or if they were like, I'm not fucking going out there. I'm not going, I'm not going out to bat for you. And Dominic Rab's not normally that picky, is he? He'll, he'll say anything. And Shaps was obviously unavailable because he'll say anything. Um, but it might not matter whether the government follows the law in future because we've got the interpretation bill uh, to look forward to, which will enable the government to retrospectively throw out judicial decisions it doesn't like. Now, we'd all like that. Um, but <laughs> how could it possibly work? As a former lawyer, I think it would take me an entire evening to explain to you the ways in this, in, in which this is fucked up. I mean, they have every right, Parliament does, to overturn a statute, to say this law is being interpreted in a particular way, we don't like it, we're going to change the law. But what they're saying here is that they're going to pick on individual decisions. The English legal system works on precedent, so a judge in the future looking at a similar case, who do they listen to? The decision that's been overturned but gives no reasoning, the previous precedent on that decision, does that still stand? The statute, how do they interpret the statute? They know that they did it wrong last time, but what's the right interpretation? It's awful. It's an awful piece of legislation. And the Lords, to be honest, will never, ever let it go through. 
It's just not going to happen. Once again, the amount of times I find myself going, good old House of Lords. Yeah, <laughs> I know, it's weird, isn't it? Great, great bunch of lads. Um, completing the panel, it's self-proclaimed liberal extremist to jumped up Baldy and columnist for the iPaper, Ian Dunt. I uh, want to get this out of the way. Um, there were apparently political journalists at the number 10 party. So <laughs> did you share an Uber with James Forsyth and Chopper? Uh, yeah. It may surprise you to learn this, but uh, I don't really get invited to Downing Street parties anymore. I used to. I used to once upon a time, and then I met you people, and after that, the invitation <laughs> sort of fucking stopped, really. It's not the jumper, then. That you, that's not the reason. The jumper is among the political crimes that I've committed against the current administration. In uh, less hilarious news, you've been uh, writing about the Nationality Bill, which just passed its third reading in the Commons this week. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, why is it terrible? Oh, fuck, so many reasons. Um, I mean, we have to get the first part out of the way, which is that it is unbelievably cruel and vindictive against the most desperate people in the world. What it essentially does is to criminalise those using irregular routes, irregular routes, people getting here by boat, sometimes by lorry. Government's sort of argument is, well, you don't need to use an irregular route, just use a safe route, right? But they haven't fucking set up any safe routes. That's how they start the Kafkaesque nightmare that you're through. Four months ago, they promised a safe route from the Middle East, absolutely nothing. You're criminalized upon arrival to the UK. That means that you will almost certainly be prosecuted and go through the court process before you are able to make your asylum claim. Even afterwards, you would then be put in punishment bar- barracks, they'll use the Napier barracks, They'll keep people separate from their families, which is really the worst thing you can do to a refugee. All of that we knew and was very pernicious. Then in committee stage, Pretty Patel does something else. She suddenly gets this thing called Clause 9, and she inserts it into the bill. It's very similar to what you've just been talking about. High Court ruled against her use of these powers this summer. Her response is to go back and rewrite the bill, not to change the law to make up for what the High Court said, but to say that all the illegal things I did during that period, are now retrospectively legal by virtue of this new legislation. This is the kind of thing that no sophisticated lawmaking society would do, and certainly no functioning democratic society would do. It gives her powers that when you are a naturalized Brit, in other words, you're an immigrant Brit, you came here, you secured citizenship, she can strip you of of your citizenship without telling you the charges against you, without even notifying you that it is happening. And doing it when you're overseas, so you're really functionally unable to secure any kind of practical element of your appeal rights. It is the creation of a two-tier British citizenship that applies overwhelmingly to ethnic minorities. It's been done on the sly, in the shadows, in committee stage in the House of Lords. It won't fucking surprise you to learn. It is absolute poison. Uh, So here's what's going to happen tonight. In the first half of the show, we'll be looking at the state of the two main parties two years after the election of Doom. Uh, We were here, weren't we? Good times. (laughs) Good one. It's a really good one. It's a nice last one before the pandemic, wasn't it? Last one in London. It's a really good good one to go out on. Um, (laughs) Then, in part two, we'll be counting down the ten worst things about 2021. Look out for your (laughs) favourite. We'll also have a very Christmassy party game for the panel called You Are the Dictator. We'll be asking the panel to engage in a thought experiment in which they are carried to absolute power by means unknown. What will they do with their position and why? And we have a special treat for you. Alex has been reading Frank Mansoir's new book, Spartan Victory. (laughs) The one the Ramonas tried to stop. 
and he's going to read out some of the best bits in his sonorous thespian tones. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this, uh, this, this would be a party worth breaking the law for, I think. <laughs> So first, we're coming up on the second anniversary of the 2019 election, which means we're more than likely about halfway through this parliament. Rishi Sunak is already promising tax cuts, and Starmer is making his shadow cabinet battle ready. So we're going to do the Oh God, What Now? halftime report on how the major parties and their leaders have done, and what we can expect from the next election. Two massive factors that have dominated this parliament are, of course, COVID and Brexit. Uh, Naomi Johnson, you'll remember, won the election on getting Brexit done. And he got it did. Obviously, uh, there are no fans in this room, unless you've got the, the dates wrong. And there's a different, <laughs> there's another, another show you should be at. You can leave now and get a under the door. Um, what can Best for Britain tell us about how uh, his supporters are feeling about it now? I mean, it probably won't surprise you to know that uh, his supporters and ardent Brexiteers aren't champing at the bit to fill out Best for Britain surveys. Um, but you're and, a poll watcher. But, but you are yes, a poll yes, watcher. Exactly. You are the poll watcher. Um, we did have a recent poll that showed 53% of people think that Johnson's Brexit deal has created more problems than it's solved and only 15% saying the opposite. And within that, cross breaks are that, that levers were 30% to 25%, meaning that there was a very high don't know which is bullshit. They do fucking know. They just don't want to say. They don't want to admit. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely Who's created a lot more tell? problems than it's solved. But, you know, even Brexit-backing bosses like the CEO of Iceland have said, this is this is really quite shit for us now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that they are they are not being given what they thought they were going to be given. Well, nobody warned them, so... <laughs> it's, it's all very unfortunate. Um... The strategy seems to be to lean into to every fight at the moment uh, with Brussels and make Brexit a source of endless conflict. Is this working for them? I mean, domestically, <clears throat> jury's out. Internationally, absolutely not, playing very, very badly for them. Um, the US, of course, isn't lifting the tariffs that Trump imposed on steel and, I think I meant to say, aluminum, um, if we're, we're talking about US, because of all of the the bombastic threats over triggering Article 16 and what that would then mean for uh, peace and security in Northern Ireland. Boris is clearly laying the groundwork for some kind of rapprochement with Macron because it's, you know, looking like Macron is going to win uh, the next presidential election. So there's all sorts of reports about us granting more permits for French fishermen and things like that. So I think if, if their Brexit strategy was working for them uh, with their focus groups of, you know, conservative voters and potential conservative voters, they'd be picking at the sore a bit more than they are. Perhaps that's an indication that it isn't working so well for them domestically. Um, and, you know, antagonizing the French and bathing in Ramona tears is kind of thr- thin gruel when shops have got empty shelves. So, yeah, I think I think it is beginning to unravel and we're beginning to see the separation of the COVID impacts from the Brexit impacts. And that's going to become clearer as we go into 2022. Also, we're all cried out. There's no more tears to bathe in. I mean, famous last words, do we? No, we're just, just stony-faced resentment. Um, Alex, Starmer's strategy has been don't mention the B word. Can he pin the failure of Brexit on the government if he doesn't want to mention it? 
No, but I don't think that's a smart electoral strategy anyway. I don't think people will particularly enjoy being told you made the wrong choice in the referendum, but make sure, you make, the, make sure you make the right choice now and vote for me. Um, I think we have to accept that it's going to be a nudge and a wink strategy where people vote for Starmer knowing that, you know, by virtue of being a sane and rational human being, he will try and repair relations with Europe as much as he can, but he's not going to make it the tentpole of his next election. And I, I don't think it's realistic by people to expect that. And I don't think it would be productive. I think, you know, we should all want a change of government and we should be smart about what, what is more likely to bring a change of government and just go along with it. You know, it's, it's, it's a time to be politically smart. So do you think Starmer, because he can see this attack line that he's a, a Islington Remainer and he's just not going to give them any in Sure, on he's not going to give them an in on it. And also, what's the fucking point? I mean, if you're looking at repairing the damage with Europe, you, you're looking at a long process that will take years, probably decades. The rebuilding of trust, the joint projects, the, you know, rejoining bits of it, uh, programs, maybe a little bit of uh, customs union, maybe a little bit of Switzerland-style single market before maybe going for a sort of EEA mem membership. Because what this country tends to forget, and even progressives in this country forget, is that this isn't a conversation that just involves one side. There is another side to this, and they ain't going to touch us with a fucking barge pole. What's the benefit of, you know, Keir Starmer going into the next election going, rejoin, when there's zero chance of rejoining? I do like your very inspiring slogan, maybe rejoin bits of it. <laughs> Which is uh, we just have to be coming soon to a placard near you. <laughs> we we have to go for a sort of Jewish rejoin. Eh, little bit of this, little, little bit. Of. Um, Ian, moving on to COVID. Um, oh, good. <laughs> you get the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the idea that the government is doing the best it can uh, does seem to persist. And maybe that's true, but maybe the best it can is uh, is no damn good. Um, now, vaccine and furlough were considered the two big successes if we were talking about this a few months ago. Do they still hold up? Are they are they are, they, are people still thinking? Oh well, fair fair enough, they did that, or is that wearing off? I think the vaccine thing is still there. Furlough deserves respect as a very good policy. You know, it may not have been tapered off correctly, but it was a good good solid. Keynesian policy, you may have heard I rather like that sort of stuff. Um, the vaccine stuff just drives me fucking mad, really, because he really, I mean, look, you look at the AstraZeneca contract, heavily redacted, but actually you were like, well, it's all right. I mean, it's got pretty good oversight mechanisms. It's got pretty good sort of delay notifications and a remedy system, but it's not fucking spectacular. Now, the creation of the vaccine of three separate viable forms of vaccine so quickly and the, the spectacular engineering genius. I was talking to a guy this week about what it takes to fucking produce that shit. Like checking off every ingredient, making sure storage capacity is there. What are the requirements for linoleum on flooring in the production process? 
the ventilation. If you look at like how mRNA works, mRNA is like looking at a fucking sci-fi movie. Mm. It's insane. Like you're basically hacking the messaging system between the DNA and the cell. Like th- there is almost no limit to be to what can be achieved with this kind of technology. But of course, because I am who I am, I, I mostly read it and thought, does this mean I can start smoking again? <laughs> like, you know, there's a potential cancer cure territory here. Um, it is absolute fucking genius, and it came from individual genius, and it came from hundreds of thousands of people just dropping what they were doing and focusing exclusively on this project in sometimes in very, very tedious elements of it. It came from public and private and philanthropic and civic money being thrown to change the risk calculus of phase trials. It was absolutely, it was like the pinnacle. I mean, it's not been a great year. Obviously, it's been fucking terrible. But if you take a step back, that project, the vaccine project, was like the absolute pinnacle of what humankind can do when it works together for a core goal that it actually wants to fucking achieve. And to see that turned into, didn't Boris Johnson do well, breaks my fucking heart. Um, Naomi, there's been criticism of Starmer that he has not gone in hard enough on the government over COVID. And certainly his, his initial strategy in his early months was to be uh, to project competence. Uh, now do you think that cronyism and corruption have opened up a kind of a, a richer vein? Have we sort of seen the limits of, of just of looking like you won't fuck everything up? Yeah, because idiots are easier to forgive than the venal. You need to paint your opponent as a real threat to energize opposition against them. And obviously we saw that uh, with, the, with the Democrat campaign to get rid of Trump. And I just think that this act of the bumbling buffoon caught on his fucking zip wire is wearing thin with everyone now, you know, even even some of his most long-standing supporters. And Labour has just got to capitalise on that and, and really go after the sleaze and the scandal rather than the ineptitude. Would that not be playing politics? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and, you know, I I, I do think there are some traps for Starmer in the years to come because Labour did back the government on all of their COVID measures all the way through, and so, you know, the the Tories are going to use that against them. Um, So they do also need to appear to be a very credible alternative rather than just going on the, well, we've got to get rid of these completely corrupt, sleaze-ridden, you know, uh, one rule for you, no rules for them kind of people. I, I think the Labour reshuffle has gone some way to doing that. I think it, it, it's looking now much more like a government in waiting. Ian, what did you make of the um, of the Shadow Cabinet reshuffle, which now seems like a, a, a very long time ago, a pre-party gate uh, affair? Um, but were you... Um, were was, you sort of impressed by the choices or? Yeah, I was a fan. I thought it looked good. I thought Lisa Nandy, it seemed like the right place for her. You kind of, she was good as foreign secretary. She made the right calls, but it, you just think, I really do want to see you opposite Michael Gove on leveling up. That is basically what you want. Um, I think that works well. Yvette Cooper, I've had, I've had to go through a long sort of period in my life. I used to find her way too right wing. She's, she is still too right wing for me. She is, but. She's good, she's good, let's say, you know, in front row politics. I've got to say, I had a personal experience with her, which sort of, in the middle of the Brexit thing, which convinced me, where I sort of, I was talking to these Labour MPs and laying out how the next bit of sort of Brexit went. And we had a conversation. And as I was talking, 
Steve Cooper afterwards, I noticed, I was like, oh yeah, you've understood what I'm about to say and all the possible objections to it before I even finish the sentence. And I was like, oh, you're just vastly smarter than I am. And in the middle of Brexit, what you fucking want is politicians that are smarter than you are. She fits that category. Honestly, up close, she fits that category. So for that, you're like, great, please, please, make as much use as you can. The, the reshuffle was good, and I think, like you're saying, you can already see it paying dividends. Also, and it's like it was a big week for former uh, Romaniacs guests. Bridget Phillipson and Wes Streeting, both promoted to big And it's almost Lammy. like we made it. Yeah, Lammy. And yeah. David Lammy, yeah. It's like, it's like three is a trend. <laughs> Um, so I think aspiring MPs, uh, you know probably, what to do. We should probably point out that we've had a lot of MPs as guests who are now in the political wilderness. <laughs> I mean, oh yeah, me- really most of them few. are no longer MPs. <laughs> but those I mean, that are MPs are flying bloody podcast. <laughs> Alex, moving on to levelling up. Oh, goody. It's, um, it's a mixed bag. Cancelling the Birmingham to Leeds leg of HS2 uh, has not been very popular with anyone who lives between Birmingham and Leeds. Um, and of course, much of the leveling up money is going to Tory areas. I've tried not to use the phrase the red wall, but I mean, are those gains looking, do you think they're sort of fragile enough to be affected by an impression of broken promises? Or do you think that because that cultural shift was so long in coming, that people are less more inclined to go well i've made i've made my move now mm. than to just go oh well that didn't work out will a hundred percent of the people who switched to voting for johnson switch back to voting for labor no will a good 50 percent of them stay home next time and some switch i think yes and i think that's the real impact when people feel disappointed they stay at home the the game is always motivating your own base to go out and vote. And if your opponent does things that basically demotivate their base to go out and vote, you're in a good place. Well, that is the story of the polls a lot of the time, isn't it? That, that it's sort of Tories yeah, they sort of switching to don't know don't rather know, than switching to Labour. Yeah, don't so, know, maybe reform. Don't know. They might, they, you know, they might try a little bit more. It's right wingery, <laughs> you know. Maybe may, maybe I'll go further right. Just have, test that out. Have a little dabble. Yeah, but but I think ultimately what it does is fracture that belief that here is a person that that really understands me and can help me. And I don't know why that belief was there to start with. I'm not the right demographic it was a to ask. Picture. They saw, they looked at him. Yeah, I mean, hanging there and thought he understands that's my concerns. Me. That's me. <laughs> that's I see myself me. in Just him hanging there, like my bollocks uncomfortably <laughs> squeezed into a, a sort of triangle harness, and no one understands my pain. Yeah, sorry. I know you hate it when I talk about bits. Sorry, sorry. No, Dario. I don't mind as long as they're inside something. <laughs> It's when they're just... <laughs> Can I quote you on that? <laughs> that oh, fucking dear, horrific. this went downhill quickly, did it not? And I haven't even started reading Mark Francois' book yet. <laughs> More sexy time from Alex Slater. Um, Ian, throughout the Parliament, the government is so desperate to run a, a, a culture war. Uh, statues, free speech, BBC, war on woke, etc., it seems to have, I mean, I haven't heard so much about it 
lately. You know, there are some people sort of wearily coming to the defense of Rod Little just because they felt they had to. Um, but it seemed like some of the kind of puff had gone out of that, certainly in terms of like sort of MPs. Although, of course, there was the guy who said that uh, having a lady doctor who, um, lady doctor, technically, um, was, uh, was emasculating men and driving them to crime. And therefore explaining all of those female-driven crime waves that we've seen throughout history. <laughs> yeah. Because they, were, they didn't see themselves represented and thus formed just wild gangs, <laughs> wild lady gangs throughout history. I love that someone that listens to this and missed that whole thing will think you mean having a female GP <laughs> makes people turn to crime. <laughs> having a lady I don't know. I haven't run the numbers. Maybe. Um, do you, I mean, do you think the government has sort of realized that maybe this isn't quite the, 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 uh, the driver that they thought it would be. They're going to keep on punting for something that sticks, I think, which is really what they're looking for, something that sticks. You know, all Brexit really was was something that really, really stuck. You know, it really, really worked. And I think that they'll keep on going for it and hope that they find something. But they're not very good at it. You know what's funny is, after Cummings went, I mean, Cummings was really, he kind of had a brute perceptiveness to it, and I think an instinct for it. He was better at it than they are without him. He was more effective. And I think we did, you know, it's been much better since he's gone, not least because they're also catastrophically more inept without him there. They will keep on trying. I'm not sure they're ever going to find it. You don't really get the sense that their heart is properly in it. But it's quite easy to forget the fact that this does do fucking damage. I mean, I was speaking to someone at a, a, I'm trying to find a way of formulating the name of this thing without giving away the actual institution itself. It is one of the cultural organizations in the UK. He was sort of saying, like, look, the thing is, I'm fucking concerned about the curation that I do for the festivals that we hold for whether this stuff gets pointed at us mm. on an individual level. Because mm. it's like, I know that that brings trouble from the bosses. Like, you can't quite measure that chilling impact that you get across your cultural landscape by thinking, you know, that Oliver Dowden's underneath the bed and he's going to come bite your bollocks. <laughs> I wasn't sure how to end that, and then my eyes just sort of <laughs> fell on you two. I thought, well, I suppose bollocks. I don't know why you're looking at this me. Is, they... <laughs> is Oliver Dowden one of your As if I have some expertise in Oliver Dowden being under the bed. <laughs> um, Alex, Tony Blair, I think, Starmer should abandon anything. Oh, the big smells of <laughs> Smells of woke. But New Labour was pretty woke by uh, any definition. Fortunately, we didn't have that word back then. But so who is he like to throw under the bus? He wasn't really specific. No, I mean, and, and then again, you know what I was talking to you about, about an election campaign that's a sort of wink and a nudge. And I think Blair was sort of the master of that, of sort of saying the really popular thing, but everyone understanding that, you know, he was going to do things a particular way. And I think that's what Starmer ultimately needs to convince people. And you do that, I think, by having a, a, a few things that everyone can get behind that kind of demonstrate your values. So we haven't seen policy yet. It's, it's difficult to gauge whether he will do that, but that's what he needs to do. So, you know, the whole thing about the card with the five pledges was, was that it was absurd and reductionist but it gave a notion to people of what what this government will do, of what their values are. It wasn't specific policies. How can you fit policies onto a little card? 
but it gave them a notion of the areas that we're going to focus on. I think if Starmer can do that without getting embroiled in specific debates, mm. you see, that's his kind of danger zone. I mean, that, that does sound dangerously like what Ed Miliband did with the Edstone. That had controls on immigration on it. No, I'm sorry. The Edstone is, is like, it's literally the opposite of a card that says education. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? How is that similar? A card that says, we will put money in education to a headstone. A massive slab that says we will limit immigration. I don't know. Um, I mean, immigration will be a live issue at the next election, uh, and, and it is a difficult my point. one. My, my point is more that Ed Miliband was in opposition as leader for five years before mm. an election, very similar to the, the length of time that Starmer could be opposition leader, and sort of towing that, oh, well, I won't, you know, nail my colours to the mast too much, I won't criticise the government too much, and it didn't pay off for him. Yeah. And at the end, he rushes out the Edstone going, well, these, these, this is the list. These are the things that I actually stand for. I, so, I think, so I as, think, you know, I think as an actor, what I'd say is that how you commit to something matters. And uh, uh, I think Ed Miliband's problem was that he was wishy-washy in both the policy and the commitment to it. You can be really committed to education, 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 without giving any detail What's of Starmer the actual policy. To? I don't know. I don't listen. I don't know if Starmer is going to face uh, Johnson in the next election. I don't know if it's going to be, be Johnson skip- that faces. Be, I think you might be skipping ahead in the script there. But <laughs> no, but honestly, it might be two completely different people that came to the next election. Starmer, there was always a chance that he was going to be a sort of caretaker that did a little reset, which was badly, badly needed, and then someone else was going to come along and take over before the next election. That's still a possibility. Perhaps he has an interesting friend who could take over at some point. Um, <laughs> Naomi, we should, before we go, we should mention the Progressive Alliance. The what? Which is your favorite thing. It's your band, Naomi Smith and the Progressive Alliance. Um, I mean, there's actually been some quite good tactical voting recently, hasn't there, in by-elections and council elections, which has sort of swung some, some quite surprising seats away from the Tories. I mean, God, this is so insulting that we're going to just lump in all the other parties. Um, what stands out for you in this parliament so far of the parties that might join them in a uh, progressive alliance? Uh, Lib Dems, I mean, look, fly, Flying High could win here. The Greens, the SNP, where's the action? Look, the SNP are likely to, you know, they, they could take every seat in Scotland if there's a, a general election anytime soon. So that's that. And that has huge, 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 huge implications for a coalition government should we be you know, lucky enough to, to have some kind of alliance working that means that that is the result and not yet another conservative majority. Um, it's been incredibly difficult for anyone to get cut through in the media because of the pandemic. You know, Labour has struggled, let alone even smaller parties. Obviously, the big standout thing for the Liberal Democrats was the by-election victory in uh, Chesham and Amersham. But of course, they have got form of doing that, winning a by-election and then not holding it uh, even any, anywhere near come the general election. At the moment, I probably wouldn't put money on them holding Cheshire and Amersham at a, at a Westminster election. The Greens have been doing very, very, very well in local elections and in national poll ratings. You know, they're, they're up there ahead of the Liberal Democrats in national polls quite frequently. And that combined Lib Dem Green vote share is, you know, sometimes 15, 16, 17 percent, which of course is enough to deny 
Labour the keys to number 10, which is why Labour needs to talk to them and do some kind of deal. You're right, there has been tactical voting happening. Tactical voting happens at every election, and it is easy to do it in a by-election where you are not determining who's going to be in number 10. You can protest vote to your heart's content, you can do all of that sort of stuff. And in 2019, the Remain movement threw everything, including the kitchen sink, at tactical voting, and it wasn't enough. And it's not going to be enough, and non-aggression packs are not going to be enough, unless the polls change incredibly drastically. I had a horrible 2019, December 2019 flashback there. <laughs> Triggering. Um, actually, before we, before we wrap this up, I just want to ask each of you, do you think that, uh, I'm not going to jinx Starmer here, but do you think that Johnson will be fighting the next election for the Tories? Just gut, I'm not going to hold you to it, just gut feeling at the moment. Sure. Maybe? No. No. Uh, no. Um... <laughs> Because the Tor- because the Tories are ruthless, I d- and they'll be like, Un- "Bring on the trust." But, but also, or I'm not sure he's like, going to oh, want to do it. Jesus, he's, I, I he's going to want to do it. Unleash the trust, even if they don't get rid of him. Um, <laughs> Stop trying to emphasise in your mouth. I don't like that at all. Unleash the trust. <laughs> Cosplay Thatcher fun for all. <laughs> um, <laughs> So can, if I can just consult the will of the people, um, could you please uh, put your hands up if you think that Johnson will fight the next election? I, I can't see anyone. But um, <laughs> it doesn't seem like there's many. There were minority. Many. There was, it was about 12 pounds. Okay. So it was about 90%. So like, <laughs> like Anton Deck, uh, we think Boris Johnson's in trouble. Okay. Time for our first bout of You Are the Dictator. We are running short of time, so no Castro-style speeches, I'm afraid. The rules are our panellists have somehow gained absolute power in Britain. That's right, somehow. What will they do with this untrammeled power? We're granting each one of them three policies that they can act without any opposition from pesky voters. Uh, Alex, uh, Britain famously meddled in Greek politics during the 1940s, so now's your chance for revenge. So... It's a slate of legislation all concerning the way people behave on public transport <laughs> with, a, with a sliding scale of punishment. So, eating smelly food, wearing your mask like a chin strap, listening to dance music so loudly that the entire carriage has to sit through 40 minutes of three to seven years. Watching TV on your phone loudly with no headphones. Not wearing your mask at all, standing on the wrong side of the escalator, 7 to 13 years. (laughs) Not waiting for people to get off before you barge in, wearing your rucksack in a crowded carriage, standing on the wrong side of the escalator because you are snogging someone, life with no possibility of parole. (laughs) And I will be reintroducing the death penalty... For people who get off the escalator with two large suitcases, stop dead at the top and put them down while behind them a sort of Laurel and Hardy slapstick thing occurs and they still don't fucking know there's anything going on. So that's my... I'd be popular. Well, at least the train's running time. Well, the, the idea was that we were going to uh, we were going to discuss your policies, but really, there's no. Well, I mean, what? Uh, who could? We're in agreement. Who could disagree? 
give dictatorship a good name. Mm-hmm. Um, Naomi, what's on your autocrat's wish list? So, so what you mean, like, apart from immediately rejoining the EU and, you know... What? Bits of it. <laughs> okay. A bit here, a bit I mean, there. I found this quite hard. I found it hard to boil it down. I mean, similar to your TFL takeover, I was thinking about different... That's, he just wants to be dictator of TFL. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want the world. Just London. Not, not the whole country. I'm not now right. great leader, I'm what will you do? Sure he goes, just TFL, I'm you do what you sure like. I'm not sure the TFL else. can give people life sentences, <laughs> Dorian. Because uh, I was thinking about like, segregated lanes on pavements for different speed walking. You know, because that is fucking annoying. Um, but, but first up, I, this isn't okay. something I would ban full stop, but I would absolutely heavily regulate gambling because I want my surfs to be happy. I mean, who's seen Squid Game? I'm imagining yeah. quite quite a few of you. Um, well, there we go. You know, it, gambling is highly exploitative of very vulnerable people. That's not what most gambling's like, though. Squid Game. Just checking that you know that you know that. Um, and I just think gambling really detracts from happiness in society. And betting shops are often located in the most deprived parts of a town, uh, precisely because of the business model relying on that exploitative uh, nature of lower-income groups. And I, I really think that the change in our lifetimes, or my lifetime, has been re- really, really marked from, you know, gambling shops sort of having um, frosted windows and you couldn't really see into them, to now almost every ad break, particularly in sports matches, you're just bombarded with these sort of chirpy voices talking about bingo and poker online. It's really, really fun. Come and, you know, get, get involved with your mates. And I, I really, really don't like that. And I don't know if it was the advent of the National Lottery in the 90s that really helped to normalise gambling. Kim Jong-Smith would absolutely regulate the shit out of, out of gambling in much the same way we've done with alcohol. And, you know, you have a licensee and if someone's clearly too pissed, they don't get to drink anymore. I just think we need a, a lot more of that when it comes to gambling. Sorry, mate, you're too gambly. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, second, I think I would ban, and this is an outright ban as opposed to regulation, I think I would ban anyone... And apologies in advance to the audience. I'm sure this will cover some of you. Anyone who has studied PPE at Oxford is not allowed to make any decisions for anyone other than themselves. So if you've studied PPE at Oxford, you're allowed to choose what you want for breakfast, right? But you're not allowed to determine what your children have for breakfast. Like that, that is the level of ban on making any decisions okay. on behalf of anyone else. Um, and then, and then finally, I might look. I might have come dressed as a bit of a Christmas bauble, but I would ban Christmas. Um, I absolutely fucking hate Christmas. What a load of old shit. I mean, if you're religious... If you are a Christian, you're either celebrating six months too late or six months too early because Jesus, it, they think, was probably born in July. And it was a Christian uh, appropriation of a pagan winter festival, winter solstice thing, to, to put it at this time of year. I think it highlights any anomaly that any family situation might have and it sort of makes people feel, you know, very uh, exposed if they don't have the normal traditional family set up and all the pressure that gets put on them. And then the pressure and the monetization of it all and the, you know, constant bombarding people with, uh, you know, the need to spend money and, com- you know, this sort of really horrible commercialized thing that we're only meant to really care about people uh, at Christmas time and buy them presents at Christmas time. Fuck it. Buy everyone a present all year fucking round. That's what I do. Love all year round, not just at Christmas time. Ban Christmas, absolutely. So there we go. That's it. You're barely allowed to gamble. 
You're definitely not allowed to do PP at Oxford, and Christmas is Ian, over. Ian, does England have a history of uh, autocrats <laughs> who hated Christmas? And what happened next? <laughs> it, it went terribly well. <laughs> yeah. And that's why we don't have a royal family anymore. Um, right, Alex. Uh, so as keen observers of the news are aware, dogged, and indeed dog-like, Brexiter Frank Mansoir <laughs> has written a book called Spartan Victory, chronicling his years on the front line of Euroscepticism. Curiously, he found it hard to get published, which could only be because of a conspiracy of woke, Euro-loving elites <laughs> taking order from Brussels, or people who thought apostrophes should go in the right place. <laughs> yep, but Alex Andreu has bought a copy with British pounds, and he's going to read some excerpts for us so the Honourable Member for and Wickford shall not be silenced. Oi. I'm getting heckled already. Um, Alex, as Frank, take it away. As a young boy, I remember having a very badly glued together airfix Spitfire hanging from my bedroom ceiling. And I read a number of comics based on the war, like Commando and Victor. However, as I got literally my childhood. (laughs) However, as I got older, I moved on from cartoons to reading more seriously about the history of the Second World War. They're not fucking cartoons. They're not... They're they're comics. It's a lively, popular art form. It's a completely different thing. In particular, I became absolutely fascinated by Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a member of Parliament. And what was all that about? It turned out that he made quite incredible speeches in somewhere called the House of Commons. And what was all that about, too? (laughs) Put simply, the more I read about all of this stuff, the more fascinated I became. When I was aged 11, my mother took me to visit the Palace of Westminster, and I remember sitting in the Strangers' Gallery in 1976, looking down into the chambers below and seeing these members of Parliament (laughs) talking about how best to run the country. I was dumbstruck. I never remained so. I never perceived myself as a man of destiny. As Churchill apparently did. But nevertheless, I did, for whatever reason, have a sixth sense that one day my country would come under threat again. And that somehow it was my duty to help resist this challenge, whatever it might be and howsoever it might manifest itself. By the time I was 16, I knew that it was instinctively a conservative rather than a socialist. My route to this had primarily been through the defense issue, which I had been interested in since I was a small boy. By this stage, I was already certain that I wanted to become one day a member of parliament. Member of parliament. No, it's not in quotes this time. Oh, a real one. No, it keeps you on your <laughs> because, toes. Because now it keeps should be you in on quotes. Your toes, it should does. be in quotes now. I also, incidentally, wanted to marry Debbie Harry and also dreamt one day that I would fly on Concorde. Well, Concorde is no longer flying, and Debbie Harry, whilst still attractive, was otherwise taken. So this left me with only one route to Because if she hadn't been, because if she hadn't been... Does that mean that Debbie Harry could have saved us from Frank Mansoir MP? Can I say something else that, that Naomi will love? 
his very first election in school, their teacher ran it two ways to show them the two different electoral systems. And Mark Franson won by two votes under first past the post and lost by two votes under PR. (laughs) But it was... But it was first past the post that counted, and that was what started him down this path. Mic drop, mic drop. Blatant Naomi pandering. Um, round of applause for Alex, please. Sorry. It's very moving. You, you're simply not getting the full effect, though, of outright apostrophes everywhere, quote marks everywhere, words missing... There are words actually missing. I had to fill in words as I was reading this. Was this some... Who published this name? It was self-published by, like, Battle War Publications or something. No, I think it was just self-published. Like, literally, he did it. And if you look at the cover, you sort of get that vibe. Is it him? Is it like a, a little spitfire with a big head <laughs> coming out of it? Like? No, it's, it's Spartan victory, but the O in victory is a Greek omega. Think about see. it. Well, it's time for a short break during which you can think about the cover of Spartan victory <laughs> and have a drink. We'll be back in part two with the 10 worst things of 2021, more dictatorial diktats and your questions. See you in 50 minutes. Hello, welcome back to part two of Ho 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 God What Now, where we'll count down the 10 worst things about 2021. Uh, to help me do that, please welcome back to the stage Ian Dunt, <laughs> Naomi Smith, and Alex Andreu. Um, so we pulled our brains, think of the worst of the year. They're in no particular order, but countdowns are fun. Uh, I think of it being like the Christmas top 10, but the, uh, what lurks at the top is worse than Lad Baby. Starting us off, at number 10, GB News, the TV channel whose audience figures were sometimes lower than those of Oh God, What Now? Which is uh, amazing. Um, Alex, Andrew Neil predictably jumped ship, called it a terrible mistake. It's obviously not a proper news channel, but is it doing its real job uh, by giving clips to the radicalised right? No, man, no one, no one watches it, no one pays an attention. Attention anymore. It's a comedy channel now. It was it really quite funny because I remember people saying, oh, oh, it's easy to sneer, isn't it? It yeah. is. It's very, it <laughs> really quite easy. To Childishly sneer. simple to sneer. As for Andrew fucking Neil, don't get me started. You know, it's like Pandora hanging back the box and running away, going, I didn't mean to open it. I didn't oh know what was in there. No, Dan Wooden's in there. I didn't know. <laughs> um, Dan Wooden was like the last thing in the box. <laughs> I was like, there's fucking, fucking plague and famine and then there's Dan Wooden. Um, so perhaps not the UK Fox News after all. No. Okay, at number nine, the government's terrible police crime sentencing and courts bill. Ian, the government keeps adding amendments to it, including stop and search for people without suspicion, stopping named individuals from protesting at all if they previously committed protest-related offences. How many of these awful ideas will be amended out of it by the great bunch of lads in the House of Lords? <laughs> no, I don't know how much of a chance they're going to get to do that. And in fact, last time, do you remember when she first put it through, Pretty Patel, recurring theme, fucking dreadful, <laughs> the, the so-called libertarians, David Davison and all that, stood up 
and went, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it in committee. You know, don't, mm. let's not get too, so fucking, when it went off to committee, it came back 10 times worse than it was before. Like on that point, it is not just people with protest related offenses. Although, by the way, including this bill, if you're walking near a demonstration with super glue in your pocket, it is potentially a protest related offense. I mean, if you have caused noise around the demonstration that could potentially alarm a single passerby, it's potentially a protest-related offence. And yet, it doesn't fucking even stop there. If you are suspected of having done things that might be considered protest-related offences, i.e. you're not convicted of any crime, they can still stick this protest asbo on you. And by virtue of that protest asbo, they can control the things that you say about demonstrations on social media. A direct attack on freedom of speech, one of those qualities which they did rather claim that they cared something about, which evidently absolutely stops the moment that you're dealing with demonstrators. Um, I mean, as somebody that was involved with organizing peaceful mass demonstrations uh, down Whitehall and uh, outside Parliament uh, and in Parliament Square, uh, we're really, really worried about this bill. And actually, there is a potential to do some further amendments very, very, very late in the day. Um, and so please do make sure you're signed up to Better Written because we, we think we're going to go quite hard on one that will stop the government from stopping us from holding them to account and protesting outside Parliament. I mean, now, like, unfortunately, many protests, the ones that we went on, the ones that I'm sure many people here went on, uh, didn't actually achieve their, their aims. Why is the government so intent on banning it? Do they, do they fear protest or are they trying to appeal to people who can't get to work because of insulate britain like what's driving this so it is predominantly part of their mass agenda to cut off all routes for us to hold them to account so whether that is at the ballot box by making it harder for people to vote through the elections bill judicial campaign whether it is through amendments to judicial review one of the few ways Ordinary people can hold the government to account when they think that they have acted unethically, illegally, proroguing parliament, for instance, whether it is them trying to curtail how journalists do their job and to protect sources and to try and make that illegal, or whether it is through this policing bill. They are just trying to close off any and every route that we might be able to speak truth to power and hold these fuckers to account. Uh, I quite like alarming passers-by as well. I think you've always still, been very you good You can still it. do that as long as you're not protesting. You can just, you know, be yourself. It's a grey area. <laughs> Especially tourists on the tube, yeah. <laughs> uh, number eight, it's the insurrection section and the storming of the US Capitol on the 6th of January when a Trump mob tried to literally cancel an election result using violence. Um, in this looks even more ominous uh, a few months later as Republicans minimize or even support it. Um, has the GOP given up on democracy or is it just scared of Trump? And if he were to suffer some terrible mishap, that somehow they would be like, oh, he was awful. He was awful. We didn't want anything to do with him. No, I don't think the way it, that's how it's going. <clears throat> I think that party is in a fucking dark, dark place right now. And you would always, you kind of always hope for that moment, right, where a demagogue reveals themselves. 
you know, where there's just this moment of being like, fuck me, that is poison, that is absolute danger. And for most demagogues, you can point out something like that, something that breaks the consideration of them. And if that was going to happen, it would have been this. And the fact that it didn't, I mean, you can't fucking disappoint. It's deeply alarming. Like it's, it's a, like if you're looking at a situation where what remains the most powerful country on earth has half of its political system that has essentially given up on democracy, it is quite hard, even when you've got someone like Biden, who I think generally is a very good president, generally, not on foreign policy, but generally is a good president. It's quite hard to sleep easily in your bed at night. And that's not something that I'm managing at the moment. Do you remember there used to be movies and TV shows where the, uh, the would-be demagogue would be caught like on a mic saying something awful? And it was like, well, that's him over now then. Mm-hmm. Turns out uh, not to be so. <laughs> By the way, I think we did really well with this idea for the second half. I think it's going to really cheer people up. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's good. It's good. Death of democracy. Um, and number seven, it's the return of gorgeous George Galloway. At the Batley and Spen by-election, he, he got a fifth of the vote, came third after Labour and the Tories with his so-called, quote, working-class patriotic alternative to fake, woke, anti-British, uh, open other quotes, Labour, close both quotes, and his orchestra of dog whistles. Alex, do you think that he'll try again when the right by-election comes up? I have no mm. idea. I don't really care. There was a time when I was doing a campaign on removing anti-homeless spikes. And I thought, I'm going to be ecumenical about this. I will go on whatever channel asks me. So I went on everything, including Russia Today, and George Galloway's channel, Sputnik. I thought, just treat this like a gymnast. Wear something tight and smile a lot. (laughs) Like Boris Johnson on the zip wire. (laughs) So I get there. And it takes us 25 fucking minutes for him to say my name. Because he's going, Alex, Andre, ooh. <laughs> like it's Andre. Andre, ooh. <laughs> 20 minutes this went on. In the end, I went, yeah, it's Andre, ooh. <laughs> just, just do that. It's fine. I mean, yeah. Ian, it was a pretty sordid campaign. Um, the Labour and ex-Labour left seemed to dislike Galloway while transparently hoping that he would embarrass Starmer by costing Kim Ledley to the election. Um, it's two years since the last election, almost two years uh, since the change in Labour leadership. Why does the left still seem to be such a, an angry mess? I don't think it's the whole of the left, um, in my experience. Sure. It's basically the sort of hardcore rump of, I mean, they're very overrepresented online. You know, I, I'm re- it's, it's a nice way. I mean, at least I sort of, I wake up, I make my morning cup of coffee, a Corbyn guy calls me a c- I mean, you know, it's, it's just like, good to know some things don't change, isn't exactly. it? You know, it's, it's kind of reassuring. Really reassuring at this stage. And sort of thing. Someone oh, has nice. to. One day it will stop and I'll be like, am I just losing my magic touch? And I, I, you know. Um, and partly that's got to be a sense, that's got to be this thing of leader worship, even for a figure as sort of, sort of shambolic and silly, ultimately, as I think he is, that once you just get embroiled in that leader logic, as long as you start thinking that what is good is good by virtue of them supporting it and what is bad is bad by virtue of them opposing it, you just sort of lose contact with real objective <laughs> reality. <laughs> and you end up spending, you know, an awful lot of your time calling, uh, you know, a sort of lower-rank newspaper columnist 
And that's, I would suggest, not a good way of spending your political life. I think I've now managed to mute every single person. No, on, you always think that, and then there's Every more. single person on Twitter with a name like Chairman LMAO. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've, I've almost got them all. I just love the image of... Ian Dunn waking up, get, uh, sort of opening the window okay. like in la, a Disney la, la, cartoon. La, 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 la. A little, a little cartoon bird with Aaron Bastani's head, sort of like. La 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 la. Um. Oh no. At number six, <laughs> little gear change here. At number six, it's the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, a, a whistleblower just told the Foreign Affairs Select Committee fewer than 5% of Afghans who asked for help, many of whom helped the UK, um, were evacuated. Then Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab only worked nine to five days. And Johnson ordered the military to evacuate animals from Penn Farthing's Nowzad charity, thus taking the place of many human beings. Ian, this was a huge story at the time, even more so, uh, obviously, in the US. Do foreign policy stories always fade away because it wasn't just obviously it was a foreign policy issue but it was also like a humanitarian issue and it seemed at the time like this was so immense and now until this whistleblower it hadn't really been mentioned for a while and it's not as if the taliban are just chilling um is this just the way that these things go that actually in in, in political terms as opposed to geopolitical terms or domestic political terms people just move on yeah because we don't really give a shit about people in other countries, especially not brown people in other countries. We've demonstrated that surely by virtue of the fact that we prioritize the lives of dogs over them. I mean, what more clear cut demonstration of our attitudes towards those people could we possibly have offered? So no, we don't give a shit. And in fact, the only extent to which we did ultimately give a shit about that story was the extent that it was a story about Britain. It was about the end of Britain sort of, and this applies to myself as well. You know, that was one of my prime, that was one of the things that really affected me emotionally was, this is the end of a Britain that can operate overseas, that will stand up to Western values, that will stand up for the idea of individual freedom and democracy overseas, that has an opportunity of pursuing those values, and that we clearly do not have the commitment to it, or we would not just buckle and run because Washington decides that it's bored now. So absolutely, no, we do not give a shit. And I swear to Christ, if we do not recognize that now about ourselves after what we saw during that pullout, we never fucking will. And number five, it's the culture war. Uh, I did have a joke about the fuss about Christmas being cancelled, but then Naomi came along. <laughs> and it turns out it's all true. Um, Alex, my favourite culture war story was, uh, you know, Lady Doctor Who drives men to violence. Um, what, what was yours? Um, Nadine Dorries, Secretary of State for Culture and Media, Telling the parliamentary committee that it's, it's the government's right to audit uh, Channel 4 and reassess whether its, uh, it's uh, model is still efficient since it, the state funds it. And then a conservative colleague of hers going, the, the state doesn't fund Channel 4. And Doris replying, I have the quote here. Yes. And uh, so, though, um, it's, yeah... And that. <laughs> what? <laughs> it 
was like watching someone having a stroke. Uh, Naomi, did anything stand out for I'm you? I'm so sorry to people who have suffered strokes. I'm sorry for everything I said tonight. I'm on intermittent fasting. And so basically, I have to get all the drinking done by nine o'clock. So I am blotto, genuinely out of my tree. And we're, and we're loving it. We're here for it. Keep going. Keep going. It's absolutely fine. No, no, okay. no I, all good. On, on. More on, Alex. On. Well, we're really getting into the swamp now. At number four, it's the consequences of Brexit. From friction in Northern Ireland to the supply chain crisis and labour shortages, all of which came out of a clear blue sky. Um, <laughs> Naomi, many things that we thought would happen have happened. Is there anything that you thought might happen which is, is not yet? That actually a consequence that has perhaps not manifested itself Import yet? checks. They've been delayed and delayed and delayed and uh, are going to be phased in through 2022. So, yeah, uh, there's that. I'm pleased that business is really finding its voice now. I mean, I ran a, a, a pro-business Remain campaign in 2016. That was my effort within the referendum. And it was like getting, you know, it was like pulling teeth to get anyone from the business community to speak out. And during 2020, it was very difficult because although they were beginning to get very panicked about the way the negotiations were going and you know, how little time they were going to have to prepare for the eventuality of Brexit. They were also in total hock to the government for furlough payments, for bounce back loans, etc. So they just couldn't criticize them. And this year we have seen a change in that. We have seen business start to speak up, which is great. And we need more of it because, you know, the, the impact is going to be on jobs. It is going to be on uh, UK PLC. Uh, so, um, yeah, I think what we're really looking at now is this big disentangling of the impact of COVID from the impact of Brexit. And that's great. And we've got this really handy case study in Northern Ireland who has not had the shortages that we've had in the rest of GB, in GB and the rest of the UK. So uh, I think uh, we will begin to see a lot more clarity over what the really bad negative impacts of Brexit are that the rest of the world isn't suffering as we go through 2022. Into the top three with, and I hope there's none of them here tonight, anti-vaxxers. Ian, we, t- we did a little uh, podcast earlier in the year about the crossover of kind of the world of wellness woo with anti-vaxxers and, and the far right. Do you think this is a significant new political grouping, you know, which brings together kind of left, right and God knows what, or just a bunch of noisy wallies? I think it could be both at the same time, can't it? Um, and you're right, you're the first person to make that point to me. I was speaking to my German friend yesterday and saying, man, you guys have got terrible fucking levels. And, she, and I mean... She's quite a stern economist. She was like, it's the fucking hippies. And the main thing is she was just like, it's not this, it's not the sort of, you know, alternative for Deutschland and all that. She was like, it's just, it's fucking, it's like everyone that's into sort of herbal tea is against vaccines now. There's definitely, there's definitely like a lot of, a lot of people I remember from the dance music scene in the 90s have, have gone in a less groovy I'm not direction. Putting that into my body. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Well, at the time, they were, of course, have you tested? Have you tested this uh, MDMA? I don't want to take it. Otherwise, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. what kind of peer review trial has this MDMA gone through? I've done my research. It's got a penguin on it. <laughs> uh, at number two, Sleaze and the Owen Patterson Fair, or how the government managed to turn backbench naughtiness into a national scandal. Uh, Naomi, 
This enraged Tory MPs, who were made to look unprincipled and foolish, which they hate looking, <laughs> and gave Labour a tasty attack line. Um, is this one of those things that will have long-term consequences? Because we often talk about a lot of things that, you know, sometimes you think, oh my God, we talked about this so much on the podcast, and essentially nobody cares. Uh, is this something that just sort of rolls into other stories and continues? So I think with some of the electorate, it's baked in. You know, the the corruption and being on the make and all the rest of it is priced in for them. We saw the impact of PPE contracts for mates cut through quite well in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election uh, and, you know, saw a big kickback against the Conservatives there as a consequence. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens um, a week today or tomorrow um, in the North Shropshire by-election in, in Owen Patterson's seat. I think it's cumulative. I think it's all of a piece of everything that we've seen this week with, you know, the one rule for us and others for you, the flagrant misspending of public money throughout the pandemic uh, on, you know, PPE contracts that then didn't deliver or, you know, money for logistics companies and shipping companies that had never owned any ships, et cetera, et cetera. I think all of that is going to have a cumulative effect, but I don't think any one of them is ever going to be enough to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. I did enjoy the way that I'd never heard of Randox before that affair, and then suddenly I started seeing Randox posters on the tube, and somebody was going like, all publicity is good publicity, now people know who we are. And I'm just like, are you the corruption guys? (laughs) (laughs) Can I say, it's it's never a thing, right? It's never the thing that breaks down the person. It's just the way our memory compresses the past that does that. Uh, you know, Watergate took three years. Cash for questions went on for five. Yeah, yeah. Uh, MP expenses were based on freedom of information requests that went on three years be- before revelations began. It's just that in retrospect, we think of it as one moment in time that brought someone down. But it never is. It's always a sort of continuing... Uh, you know, a rumbling thing that brings it's actually like, I mean, it's really hard to think of anyone where basically there was a scandal and then about four weeks later, Prime Minister or President or whatever was just like, sorry guys, can't do it anymore, gotta go. <laughs> like, it doesn't happen like that, but I think maybe because we have a more accelerated, maybe sort of false memories yeah. plus accelerated news cycle, you're just kind of like, if he's still in office at the end of the month, you're just like, yeah, that didn't matter, nothing matters. Like, like even Profumo, you know, it was a few months later that the Prime Minister resigned for health reasons. And that government went on for another year until it got annihilated in the next election. So it's not... We think of these things as moments in time that brought someone down. And that means you're disappointed and frustrated because you're always going, is this the thing that's going to bring Boris Johnson down? But it's never a thing. It's just a mind play that makes us think... But it's I was worried that perhaps the government had learned that uh, you don't turn a small story into a big story by trying to cover it up. But nope, nope, nope. no lessons learned. Nope. It's finally time to unveil the Christmas number one, the All I Want for Christmas fairy tale of New York, Sleigh Bill's Megamix of 2021 awfulness. And it is the wandering hands of Matt Hancock. Um, Quite a reaction. It, Ian, what made this such... Uh, I don't want to... I don't even know what the question is. I don't want to fucking answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Who 
did he, this list? He did a sex. Seriously, who did this list? Who thought Matt Hancock cupping his mistress's buttocks was worse than Brexit? No, it's not in order. It's or not anti-vaxxers. It's not in order. It's not in order. Oh, right. It's entirely, okay. or, it's right. entirely right. arbitrary. It's called fun, Alex. Right. Try it sometime. <laughs> Who was number one? Oh, I'm sorry we're not a think tank. Number one. <laughs> it's a countdown. It, Ian. Ian, why, why did this burn itself into the retina and brains and dreams <laughs> of a nation? Oh, because of the image. And the bit that I can't get rid of is, is the way he checks. Do you know what I mean? He checks the door to see if anyone's coming before. It's not the groping. It's the checking. For some reason, it just fucking just ruins. It's just too organized. Yeah, not well, spontaneous like, enough. I don't know the way he did it. It was like a little Lego man. Yeah. And I just fuck it. I, I can't. I actually haven't been able to forget it. And I think Roz said this thing in quite a critical way, I think, in, in the podcast. I sort of going, part of this is our natural physical disgust and it's playing into our moral indignation. And you know what? She was fucking 100% right. No, but that's a that weird, is how I feel. No, but that's a weird thing because actually I think t- t- what's happened today with the Allegra Stratton thing, the freeze frame of her laughing. Yeah. And she wasn't laughing at the British people. That wasn't what was going through her head no. at the moment. At that moment. But that's the image. And it is interesting that that there are sometimes consequences and that a lot of the time that does come from a video. Mm-hmm. It does come from an image which somehow kind of cuts through to something really visceral. She was that? laughing, in my view, out of exhaustion at having to deal with a fucking man-baby upstairs. That's what I got from it. She was going, I don't know, I just want to die. <laughs> so, those are the worst things of 2021. Uh, be that, 2022. <laughs> now, before we move on to audience questions, it's time for another quick round of You Are the Dictator. Where well, history demands that our panellists use and abuse absolute power. Ian, what three policies would you enact? What's your liberal illiberalism? Right, yes, excellent. Okay, so let's start with university. Everyone has to fucking go to university. Um, there's a real sort of, you'll notice the... But not PPE Oxford. But fine, fine. I mean, we, we'll cooperate that far. You've gone fucking crazy on the Christmas shit, but I'm, I'm with you on the, the PPE. Um, and you can see this thing on the right of really wanting to attack universities. I think the, the primary reason for that is because universities produce progressive rational voters sometimes generally speaking that's the way that you that you'll win elections the hecklers are in the crowd i've had um, quite a bit of wine now <laughs> um, um and so i think they've constantly got this thing of like oh what are they being indoctrinated with in university it's like no 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 what's happening is people are being educated in this place and therefore they can see through your bullshit so we want more of that what I don't want necessarily is for it to be an academic subject. So that you get to go away for three years, study whatever the fuck you want, and it's quite practical. But it is crucial that people get to go away. That period of 18 to 21, you're old enough to think properly about what you want for your life, but you're not so old that you're set in your ways. That ability to reinvent yourself at university is right now reserved for the middle classes. That should be something that is available to everybody. Send them abroad if you're a dictator. Three years university abroad. Yeah, right, study on, mate. <laughs> Isn't there a history of dictators sending people abroad? <laughs> um, okay, um, I'll, I'll make them a bit quicker. Uh, so the second one is, uh, we really do need to separate the idea of sex and reproduction. And I think we should decide that as a society, technologically. Okay? Sex is for fun times. 
Reproduction should be something that we do in a lab. I'd spent... Let's see what's funny about it. It's all talk. getting a bit Matt Hancock, isn't Sometimes. it? No, no, this is important. This is no important. one wants Sometimes. the image in. No one wants the image. So we've got... So, so, so you have to when t- you check the door. It's <laughs> 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 an asshole. A woman uh, in the audience actually went, Ow! <laughs> when I you mention Matt Hancock. The thing is, Ian, we've, we don't have much time, and I'm really worried about how you're going to explain... Your techno reproduction in. Uh, I, I'm not going to go through the logistics. We do need to improve it significantly. <laughs> so I am. I've gone through sort of my life being sick and tired of watching women in their 20s and 30s end up in worse, having to sacrifice the career that they have, and then often ending up with quite average men because they're put in this situation, right, where it's like, oh, you've got to suddenly <laughs> reproduce right now. That's very tough. I mean, it's actually worked very well for me. <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, I, I, you know, I'm self-sacrificing in this way. So then what we need is we need to get the tech there so that at the age of sort of, you know, 16 to 21, women can just freeze the fucking eggs, just harvest the shit out of those eggs, freeze them, and they're just there for you whenever you want them. No more of the biology. Fuck biology. Fuck nature. Everyone goes on about nature, how wonderful it is. Nature is insane. Why would nature allow 16-year-olds to be at the peak of fertility and 40-year-olds not to be? That's just crazy. So, no, we've got to conquer it. We've got to conquer nature. Um, uh, the last one is, very, very quickly, we, we've got to legalize all the drugs. Obviously, that makes complete moral sense. And crucially, I think on the day that we legalize drugs, that's going to be the Drug Olympics. And that will have two forms. Firstly, that we will fill people full of as many drugs to increase their performance to the absolute peak of human capacity. <laughs> but then a separate one where we actually test the mind. So we just fill them full of really powerful psychedelics, demethyltryptamine, ketamine, LSD, just see like how far can you run when you don't understand the concept of matter. (laughs) Go on then, Dictator Linsky. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to have to be quick. Um, Abolish private schools... um, Yay! Um, because, because I mean, they're, they're just they're, they're manifestly unjust. Uh, there's no moral justification for them, and um, you know, but you perhaps need to be a dictator to do that. Um, secondly, uh, just all the all the refugees, just stop worrying about you know Nigel Farage and and you know what the voters are going to think. Just be like you, you rock up and you just go, yeah, well done, come in. in. Um, which I think would be a break with dictator traditions. <laughs> uh, I think refreshing. All the other dictators would be going, this guy's got some new moves. He's, he wants people coming in. Um, and thirdly, I would have a strict expiry date on memes. So <laughs> on Twitter, uh, a new meme comes along. Everyone has a little bit of fun, you know, for like maybe three months. And then, no. Then you go to jail. You, you send day. me. You, I make a. You know, I say something funny on Twitter. Happens often. It, is that a hard date? Yeah, hard date. And then somebody sends me the woman spitting out water. Jay, no, no grey area, sort of. No cell, but no. where you can sniff no. the meme. No, because it's like to a tell fucking, if it's off or not. No, they're just like floating around, like no, fucking yeah. debris, digital debris, and just taking the place of actually saying something funny. What's the punishment if someone shares a, a Matt cartoon? <laughs> well, Matt nails it again. 
So come now. <laughs> Matt always nails it. If you want to know uh, what two people walking past a newspaper, uh, you know, kind of hoarding, will say to each other in a wry tone of voice, um, Matt nails it. And that is the end of the show. Um, yeah, I'm afraid we have a, we have a hard out. I would like to thank the panel, Ian. Naomi. And Alex. And Dorian. Um, also, Andrew, Martin, uh, Alex Reese, Yelena, and Jacob, um, who keep Podmasters going. Thank you. You have a bee's knees. Um, everyone at the Leicester Square Theatre, everyone who's here, and who is watching us on Zoom. Hi, Zoomers. All patrons uh, who have supported us all year, all listeners, everyone I've ever met, effectively. <laughs> everyone. God, my agent. My agent. <laughs> Just, uh, just everyone. Now, we have so little time, I'm afraid, for audience questions, so they will have to be one word only. <laughs> so you shout your word and we just interpret it freestyle. Why? <laughs> um, no, but, you know, no no kind of uh, statements. Um, so we're, we're going to have maybe time for two or three. I'm really sorry, but um, we've got a hard deadline, which we don't normally have. Naomi particularly, do, do you think the Northern Ireland could kill the Brexit dream? It's a, a, a huge question for me, and I'm a big fan of yours, and I really, really want to know the answer to this, if there's an answer. I don't have an immediate answer. I don't think that we will trigger Article 16. Uh, I think the stakes are far too high uh, in terms of the US trade deal, in terms of uh, you know triggering a, a trade war with the EU. But what Northern Ireland could end up being is the best place in the whole of Europe to do business. And, you know, I think, I think if anyone is a business person here and is thinking of relocating anywhere, Northern Ireland's a pretty good bet. But I don't think it's going to be the thing that necessarily saves us. Sorry. Uh, thank you. So my dictator policy would be universal basic in- income. Whoop, what is whoop. the, what is the panel's view on UBI? And also, is it, is, could it politically be achieved? Or is it just a pipe Well, we basically had universal basic income during the pandemic <laughs> in some ways. Um, you know, that was the furlough scheme, the government paying everyone to just stay at home and get stay out of trouble. Um, it's been tried. Uh, the results are counterintuitive in an encouraging way in that people don't work less. They tend to work more and be more productive so I'd love to see a trial of it. I mean, we're scientific, scientifically minded people, aren't we? Why are we debating all this stuff in the abstract? Just put it to the test. Yeah, Just J- try it out in an area and see how it works. JFDI. Yeah, I, I, I think it could happen. There are many more outlandish policies. Hmm. You know, that. Yeah. The, there's a man there that I said yes to and then the opportunity was Middle snatched away row from him. From the front. And okay, I, I feel over here because you said they were over here. So give me two seconds. Okay. 
Just shout it out and I'll repeat it. Peering out to see. Just shout it out and I'll repeat it. Of all the MPs that you've ever had on the podcast, who would you most like to date? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, no, he said, who would you most like to have as Prime Minister? Do you know the one, I don't want to over-promote, but one who really impressed me, who I thought was very... Bridget Philipson. Yeah? Yeah. The question is not who you would like to date, Dory. (laughs) I did did like her, her, her hair. (laughs) <laughs> um, it was a kind of very sharp bob like the band Ladytron um, but yes no just in terms of kind of intelligence she was very, she was very serious I was quite intimidated but I'm quite intimidated by serious people she was very intelligent and serious and sort of cool and composed and that, that was that was somebody who I didn't know that much about at the time and thought oh that's somebody who's very impressive mm-hmm. anyone else any advances I can't answer this, actually. I've sort of been racking my brain. I really. I mean, I quite can't. love... I'd, I'd love to see Jess Phillips as Prime Minister. I know it's never going to happen. I know it's never going to happen, but boy, would that be a ride. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just to have someone with real flesh and blood and emotions I'd, just reacting to something. I don't think we should just... I don't think we should keep it to MPs. It should be anybody who's in the podcast. Give Al Murray a chance, you know. <laughs> Um, so that is 8.45 on the dot. Very sorry we didn't have time for more questions. Um, thank you so much again. And, uh, I remember when you're feeling uh, downhearted, remember Alex's stirring words, maybe rejoin bits of it. Thank you. We love you. What Now? was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith, Ian Dunt and Alex Andreu. Sound, promotion, interval playlists, Zoom coordination, sprinting with a wireless microphone and ball ball wrangling was by Andrew Harrison, Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, Martin Botos and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.